I didn't think it would happen, but Microsoft is going to allow WSL2 distros to run on Windows Server. I don't know. I thought they'd draw the line because, of course, once you allow WSL on Windows Server, why even use Windows Server stuff? Just start running it all under Linux. All the license fees, the same amount of Linux. <laughs> Hello, friends, and welcome back to your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And my name is Brent. Hello, gentlemen. Well, coming up on the show today, it's one of my favorite episodes. We're going to go back in time and witness the early days of a tool that is just ubiquitous now, something we talk about all the time. But where did it come from? And then we're going to jump forward 15 years and join our buddy Brent on his journey to learn that tooling. Well, they just got back from a family road trip to Bozeman, Montana. I got a couple of stories to share with you guys. And then we'll round it out with some great boosts and picks and more. So before we go any further, let's say hello to our virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello, hello. 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 Hello, hello. Chris. Hello, Brand. Hello. Wow. Hello, everybody. That's great. Strong show in today. We got a, we got a great Mumble show. We got also some folks in the live chat. Of course, we're doing this on a Sunday around uh, noon Pacific is usually when we get started. Whenever Wes shows up, you know, we'll just get the show going. I like to make an entrance. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Don't tell me about it. He's got a whole long list of stuff, too. So, yeah, I just got back. Welcome back. Every time you leave, I worry you might not come back. So I feel like we got to make it, you know, we're happy to see you. I am kind of still riding high. It's like we actually pulled it off. You know, gas prices are crazy. Plus, whenever you're whenever you're going about 800 miles each way, something could happen. Right. And indeed. A few things did happen. Oh, no. Is Joops okay? Yeah, Joops is all right. Um, Hadia's car, on the other hand. Oh, no. Oh, no. <sighs> just as we were getting gas, we just started out, and uh, she was navigating around the gas station. These gas stations are always crazy. And they had these short, like, poles around a light post, and she backed up and, and broke the, the one, like, the driver's side, uh, you know, uh, brake light. And that was kind of a rocky start, because she's like, oh, yeah, it's, we've been on the road for like 30 minutes. Oh, oh, this was like as you were leaving. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, oh, God, what, is this a bad sign or what? But we got on the road and it was pretty good other than I'm pretty sure I had COVID. I'm not positive, uh, but I'm pretty sure I got COVID a couple of days before, about about five days before we left, right? As I was trying to do pre-record. So, of course, we couldn't pre-record, which meant we had to do some stuff on the road, just had to be dealt with on the road. But I started getting better. Not 100%, but I got enough, you know, to, to, to do this. Because it is a big deal for the kids. It's like a yearly thing. And uh, so, so we get down there. Actually, you got to actually drive them out there. Right. I'm the driver. Yeah. You can't get around it's that. It's up to me. So we get down there the first night. And I'm like, I'm not feeling so good. Hadia says, well, I'll take the kids over. We'll go swimming. We'll go for a few hours. You get like one night of quiet. I'm like, okay, great. Thank you. That's, that's, thank you. That's so sweet of you. Really appreciate it. And so she takes the kids off and I'm like, well, this is great. I'll chill out a little bit. I'll, I'll get caught up on my messages. Maybe I'll lay down because you know, I'm still not feeling very great. And um, about 20 minutes into my super relaxing night, I, I open up the bathroom door and I see a puddle of water at the foot of the toilet. Oh, no. Oh, no. This isn't a good thing. Either, you know, best case scenario, someone pissed all over the floor, right? That's my best case scenario, right? <laughs> Fingers crossed for that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, okay. And I look at it. It doesn't, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like it came from a human. It looks like clear water. And it's coming right from the base of the turlet. And 
I think to myself, oh no, my toilet is leaking. So I, I mop it up, make sure, you know, and shake the turlet a little bit, you know, like I just grab the bowl and I just shake it a little bit and more water seeps out. Oh no. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and I got a thing with water. I got a thing with water in this RV right now. And I just, I was devastated. Like my evening went from like, Hey, I'm chilling to like, I'm getting rid of this RV. Everything is horrible. <laughs> We're going to just get in the car and drive home. I'm going to burn this thing to the ground. Right. Wow. I just couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't. Yep. And uh, so I dried all up. And I check in 20 minutes later and there's more water there. So, okay, all right. Shut off the water to the RV because, of course, I don't have a, a knob just for the toilet. So I shut off all the water and I sit there waiting, you know, for Hadia to get back so that way I can tell her the bad news and be like, we got to solve this because we don't have a functioning toilet on our family road trip. And um, so we go to bed, you know, we think on it a little bit. Next morning we wake up and we're like, okay, it's daylight. Let's take a look at this thing. And we realize that because uh, these these RV toilets have a, a pedal to right. flush them. Mm -hmm. We realized that it, it was, once again, the leak was actually coming from the pedal oh. where the valve that actually turns the water on and off is. And then it was just running behind the toilet and coming out. And uh, so we thought, okay, well, we fixed this before. We start looking at it. Of course, there's no parts. There's no parts. And the idea is like, well, there's pretty much nothing we can do but bang on it. So I'm like, oh, I can do that. So I bang on it a bit. Doesn't fix the problem. Surprise, surprise. So she heads out to try to find parts, doesn't find anything, ends up getting a whole new toilet, just a whole new one. So we had to do a toilet swab in Bozeman, Montana. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then, of course, the plumbing doesn't line up. Oh. The, you know, the plumbing doesn't line up. So, like, we're, we're like, cutting the plumbing and, like, rerunning the oh plumbing lines goodness. and, like, bringing that in. And, of course, when you take the toilet out, there's just a hole in the ground that goes down to the black tank. So, like, we're trying to, like, keep that capped and not drop anything Whoa. down in there because then that would be gone forever. So That's it, how you lose a kid right there. Basically lost an entire day to fixing the toilet in Montana. Uh, but now we got a better than ever toilet. Like, whenever we upgrade or whenever we fix, we upgrade. So now we got a real premium model, you know, or one of your residential units. Oh, wow. Yeah. Only with a pedal. With sure, a pedal. Sure. But yeah. Uh, so that was good, you know. But probably not the most frustrating. Well, maybe it was the most frustrating. It was probably the most frustrating, but not the most technical issue to solve, right? Oh. It was just like a, a mechanical problem, right? And these things happen, especially the plumbing as you're going down the road. They can shake loose a little bit. And if anything was just kind of on the verge of cracking or breaking, it does. That's when it's going to happen, yeah. You know, Jupe's a seven years old, too, and this turlet's a full-time turlet, so. It's seen things. Yeah, it has seen things. I mean, Brent knows. We've we've been through things with our turlet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, props to my wife. She's a, she's a real, like, just dive in and fix it gal. She goes out there. She gets the parts. She talks to the guys. Even though she doesn't, you know, necessarily understand the language, she manages to break through that and get the stuff. And we got it all connected. And yeah. uh, what you want in a crisis is an idea. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah. So, but on, 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 the, uh, on the side of, like, technical issues that I had to deal with on this road trip, real quick recap. I've talked about my Starlink setup before. These are... What I effing love about Starlink, other than it brings internet to remote places where I couldn't get connected before, is that it's Linux, right? These are Linux satellites, and these are Linux dishes, and they have, it's just the whole stack is Linux, and it's so great. Even their, their Wi-Fi router is also Linux. And so it's such an interesting implementation of the software that we've talked about for 15 years. You know, we've gone from arguing and debating if TiVoization was going to destroy Linux to now I've got... Linux powered internet, right? And my circular dish, the little worm motor in there broke during transportation. 
And I, I ended up getting it replaced with a new square dish, which is easier to transport. And I got myself a sweet little crate that I have it all in there. I, I Frankenstein kind of zombied up the box they used for shipping, and I created myself a, a nice waterproof crate. So I get on location. This is the first time I've really used this new dish. And uh, oh, putting it through the pace. I had to get their silly Ethernet adapter because they've got this proprietary Ethernet cable where they lop off the RJ45 and they put on there this proprietary like USB-C kind of looking connector. And they're these strange connectors, super long, weird connectors. And so you run the Ethernet adapter in line. So you go, you run from the dish to the Ethernet adapter, from the Ethernet adapter to the router. And, and that's where I break off and I plug in via Ethernet to my router, which is a PepLink. Uh, Max Transit Duo. And this combines two different cellular, three different cellular connections, campground Wi-Fi, and Starlink over my WAN port. And it brings it all together in in one interface and balances it all. The idea with Ethernet is to just take out any kind of possible introduced latency by Wi-Fi or any kind of drops because I want to be able to do remote streams and remote recording. And when you're doing these apps, you want good solid connectivity, lowest latency possible, and you don't want to drop frames. So I, I chose to use the Ethernet connection. And with this new square dish, you got to keep the, the router in play and all that. It's fine, whatever. But I was just dropping packets like crazy. And I, I look at the app and they have a nice app that lets you scan the sky and see if you have good visibility. And I had great visibility in Montana. It's big sky country. And I had a great shot. The app says, you're good to go, bro. And I think, okay, well then why am I dropping so many damn packets? I mean, it's like one in three, one in four packets I was losing. I couldn't use the Starlink for anything. But when I test the speed on the dish itself, I'm getting like 115 megabits. Hmm. So the dish is getting good connectivity. The dish is getting good ping time. But when I'm using it on my LAN, I'm dropping packets like like a maniac. Couldn't use it for anything. Not even browsing the web. And I start doing troubleshooting and I discover that apparently there's some issue with my particular PepLink brand router and the Starlink Ethernet adapter. And, you know, people don't really know what they're talking about online, so who knows. But it seems to be maybe like it's constantly renegotiating if it's a gigabit full duplex, 100 megabit full duplex, and maybe the Max Transit can't quite handle the gigabit connection. I don't know if that's true or not. Because I'm only trying to push 100 megabits or whatever. And people online tell me that if I put a hub, and I'm curious if, this, if anybody else has heard of this, if I put a hub between the Ethernet adapter and my router, so I go from the Ethernet adapter into a hub and then from the hub into my router, problem solved. Well, I didn't have a spare hub. So I, I ended up connecting to the Starlink over Wi-Fi and it's been working fine. But it's, it's one of these things where version one, the round dish, didn't have these kinds of problems, right? I just ran Ethernet from the dish into my router and I was good to go. Just straight from the dish itself, from the Linux host in that little dish, right into my router. But now I got to go through this Ethernet adapter and this Ethernet adapter apparently has some sort of negotiation issue. And of course, they just launched the RV product and supposedly 30,000 RV owners have ordered this. And this these PepLink routers are super popular in the RV community. So yeah, I, now, now you're on the path too, right? It's so like if most people are doing the Wi-Fi, this will be less tested, probably less well understood by yeah. the customer support staff, et yeah, cetera. Yeah, yeah. I don't like it. I, like I think the big question for me becomes, why even bother with the adapter? It sounds like they're putting this proprietary connector for reasons we don't understand. Like, it, is there an advantage to it in some scenario? Because it just seems like you're adding extra bits that are just causing potential issues. 
So if you could skip over that somehow. I'm trying to bypass using Wi-Fi. You know, that's why I want it. I don't yeah. want to use Wi-Fi for that last. You, you heard there was an option to not. So. And in my setup, it's all wired. You know, my, my, my machine I'm recording from is wired to my router. My router is wired to my Starlink. And then the Starlink is about as wireless as it gets. Let's be honest. Starlink is, it's pretty great. Um, Audio, audio listeners, you can't see this, but he's holding like an RJ45 crimping tool in his hands right now. So <laughs> it's pretty dedicated. You know, they've got reportedly now 500,000 users in 32 countries now. 15,000 Starlink terminals have been sent to Ukraine. They are beginning to launch the 1.5 version of the satellites. Those have the optical terminals and they should be online by the end of the year. They're about to run a test using laser links to provide connectivity in polar regions where there's no ground stations, of course. And this is really good news. Version two of the satellites will be 10 times dimmer. Hopefully. Yeah. Principal engineer David Goldstein says that they're working on a technology that will make version two satellites 10 times dimmer than Vanta black paint. I guess that must be a... Oh, you haven't heard of Vanta but that. That's for later. Well, yeah. Okay. It sounds cool. Oh, yeah, it is. On the user side, Starlink as a service is sort of a life changer. Unfortunately, everywhere I go, it's oversubscribed now. Even in Montana, it was not, I wasn't getting speeds I initially got five months ago. Mm. And I think what's happening is people in residential areas are ordering these RV versions and they're over, and they're using them in overpopulated cells where they'd over otherwise have to wait. Sounds like you're in that sort of awkward territory, right? You got the like, initial experience when it was new and limited and more technical perhaps and now you're in the like the starts of optimizing for a more general audience and then that has some backtracking on some issues which will surely get fixed down the line right yeah. it's just going to take time well and you and i were kind of debating this earlier but i sort of feel like unlike traditional telco infrastructure they sort of build out and then that infrastructure is sort of what they use for like 10 20 years like look at cable internet look at dsl it, like our area where they rolled out fiber even. They sort of stopped about 30% of the rollout way and then they've just never gone back to it for like a decade. Um, it, it was a few exceptions here and there. But with Starlink, they can keep launching satellites. They can keep building ground stations and kind of scale it a way that I don't think you see traditional telco operators scale. Assuming they get Starship worked out. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Starship, that's the yeah. big thing here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you Which, know... Which, I mean, that's progressing now, so... Also, it appears that they're about to go to war, or they already are. There's a cold war that's getting hot right now between Dish Network and Starlink. So first of all, Dish is like trying to get Starlink busted for selling the RV version. Ah, uh, yeah. Specifically trying to go after Elon for promoting, promoting the RV version because he didn't explicitly state that you can't use it while in motion. Because Elon didn't tweet that you're not allowed to use it while in motion, they're trying to get him in trouble. Because the... Uh, FCC doesn't give them a license to use Starlink in motion. It does seem to be technically possible. You can actually use it in motion, but you're not supposed to. Mm -hmm. And so Sneaky. they are making a case to the FCC to shut Starlink down. They're going after SpaceX on this. Of course, what's really happening is Dish is about to launch their own 12 gigahertz 5G only wireless network. And that 12 gigahertz radio spectrum will interfere significantly with what start with SpaceX is a 77% of their customers. Mm -hmm. And so Dish Network has been lobbying the FCC for access to this 12 gigahertz band. SpaceX, SpaceX is trying to get it to stop. They're trying to, they're trying to show the data to demonstrate how it could be an issue. Uh, and I, you know, I'm, 
I'm really torn on this because, of course, I'd love more 5G network. Uh, and I'd be interested to see what Dish could do in this area because they're kind of a new contender. Right. But at the same time, you know, I've been doing this for a while. Nobody's got it across the line like SpaceX and and uh, Starlink have. Like, nobody has. And it's not 100% of a product yet. I don't, I don't know if I'd even consider it out of beta truly yet. But it is pretty phenomenal to get a box. And within 10 minutes, you've got, you get a box. It's got a cardboard insert with three instructions. You know, you, you connect the wire, you put it in the pole, you connect the router, you connect your app to the router, and you're talking to space. And you can go places and get internet access. And that can be, you know, a lifesaver for some people. Like if I, you know, if I ever get my dream of like living in some off-grid property where I can do podcasts, how am I going to do it without something like Starlink? Mm-hmm. And so it kind of sucks to see Dish playing these games of like trying to go after Elon personally or trying to go after SpaceX because they didn't implicitly tell you not to use it while moving just so that way they can get the FCC to crack down on them so that way they can then use the 12 gigahertz spectrum for their own thing. <laughs> At the same time, I'm like, well, I'd like to see more competition. Right. Amazon is also going to launch their their internet thing. So there's more to come in this space. Just as I start to really get reliant on it and I start to use it for work and these shows and become very happy and feel like I finally got high-speed internet in my home, you have this sort of degradation of the service itself as they, as they sort of oversubscribe. And you also have, of course, these corporate interests that are going to go after it now, too, and, you know, play a little dirty so that way they can advance their agenda. It's just such a go figure. Yeah. I mean, this one happens, right? It's a, it's a new it's a new area to explore, a new way to offer services. There's, there's going to be some hot competition. And as you so often learn, sometimes being an early adopter kind of bites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's usually a little downside. Just the way it goes. We hinted on our Dev One episode about one of you having it during the trip, but I was never, it was never clear who got the Dev One this week. So, uh, can you update us? What, uh, who got the Dev One and what'd you do with it? Uh, see, that's a lot of pressure. I've had the Dev One, but I didn't do anything crazy with it. I've just been using it like a laptop. He's using it right now, actually. I think your version of normal things on a laptop is probably crazy to most of us. I didn't do anything crazy with it because I kind of just wanted to see how it would fit into my existing, you know, if I got a dev one, what, what would it do? So I, I would like to play a little more with the dev side of it. I did. I set up a little bit of a dev environment and that was fine because it's just a normal Linux machine, but I didn't really push it to the limit or anything. But it's been a really nice throw it around and bring it wherever I'm going laptop. You know, I've been impressed with that because the battery life has been really quite decent. So I didn't have to worry about sort of like being tethered to a charger plus that you can do USB-C as well as it's um, the proprietary version meant that like I already had USB-C things hanging around my house. So if I did need to top up the battery, that was easy, um, you know, and it was and it was just right there. Uh, I also did notice at one point I kind of forgot that I had unplugged a charger that I, you know, I plugged it into the laptop, forgetting that I'd unplugged that from like I changed out my power splitter situation. And it made a really cute little beeping sound. It was going to die. And here, here I'm like listening. I'm cooking in the kitchen. I just see this little like, it wasn't scary. It wasn't like alarming, but just this little cry for help from the laptop reminding me, hey, I'm here. <laughs> Plug me in. <laughs> that sounds nice. And Chris, I know you had some success with your ThinkPad, but um, did you miss having it? Yeah, I did. I didn't get a chance to game much, but that's an area where I really would have missed it. Dylan brought his laptop. And if I would have had a gaming laptop, I think we probably would have uh, done yeah. a little bit of gaming. So that's, I was like, oh, okay, I miss it for that. The ThinkPad otherwise did did really do the the heavy lifting for this trip. Um, but the APU on there, I mean, it's essentially, it's a Steam Deck only with a 1080p screen and in a laptop form. 
So you can play pretty much anything on there. That's yeah. You know, yours is here. It arrived while I was in Texas, Brent. Whoa. That's exciting. I forgot to arrive as well at the same time. So we'll have to figure that out. We still have to figure that part out. That's for sure. But in between shows, listener Jeff, who you guys may remember, he's uh, he's been on the show before, of course, but also he helped me out at the junkyard. He helped us build out some power setups for Lady Jupes. Uh, he's in the mumble room right now. And uh, he chipped in on a nice pack of RAM. Uh, what was it? I don't know. Tell us the details, Brian. What, how much was it and has it arrived? It certainly has arrived. So I've received the RAM for the Dev One, but I have not received the Dev One, which is kind of a funny situation. But Jeff was kind enough to... We did a back and forth to try to find RAM in Canada. That was a reasonable price and available, which <laughs> seems difficult right now for some reason. But Jeff, you were kind enough to uh, max the Dev One out whenever I get it, which is about sixty-four gigs of uh, hey. DDR4, which is super generous. I don't even know what I'm going to do with all that. So open to ideas. So Jeff, thank you so much. That is very, very, very super kind of you. It's absolute pleasure. Hopefully you can put it to good use. Have some real compute power. Think, think of all the uh, quick EMU VMs you can have. Oh, yeah, it. we'll find uses for that RAM. But not only that, Jeff went the extra mile because, you know, Jeff is Jeff and he's wonderful. And he also... A kilometer. I thought this was in Canada. Which, uh, right. Sorry. I'm trying to be inclusive. He also apparently sent a box filled with a NanoStation M2 from Ubiquiti and an AC1200, which is hopefully going to solve my network problem here locally. Uh, so I just got to say, uh, Jeff, you're amazing. Thank you. We have the best listeners ever, the best friends ever, and uh, I really appreciate it. We do have a couple of housekeeping items we wanted to update you on. Probably we should start with meetups. The JB London meetup, August 5th, is, uh, I guess, is that the new time and date? 6 p.m. London time. We have that information now. That's good. It turns out we were saying 6 p.m. GMT previously, and uh, apparently that's wrong. I guess us North Americans, we don't. Oops. Uh, so a few listeners, Paul and Richard, uh, kindly corrected us. So 6 p.m. London time, which is not GMT, but uh, it was something else, BST or something like that. Well, here's what we're doing. Because these things happen, they're dynamic situations. We have set up a JB Meetups matrix space. It's early days, but we have a dedicated room in there for the London Meetup. We have a Pacific Northwest room in there, and we have a Mumble Meetup room in there. So this is a space that contains multiple rooms, and we can create more. And then we'll have standing chat rooms for events that we can jump into and participate and coordinate. Yeah, so meet, that, meet other folks that are going, right. coordinate around rides or rides, stuff, whatever you need. Yep, like uh, the next time we do a Raleigh meetup, we'll start it, we'll make a Raleigh room. And uh, if you'd like to participate in there, just contact me on Matrix, we can get you set up. But the rooms are available to the public, and we will have them linked in the show notes, and you can start coordinating your London meetup in there. We already made one for London. If you needed one more reason to get a Matrix account set up, yeah, here it is. And of course, details and any time changes, location changes, that'll be on our actual meetup page at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. There we go. Linode.com slash unplugged. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account. And you go there to support the show. It's the Linux Geeks Cloud with 11 data centers around the world. It's what we've been using for more than a couple of years now, and they've been at it for over 19 years. And I have friends personally who have used it for over a decade. It's a really, really nice way to host your applications. It's like the best way. 
personally, I wouldn't run my stuff anywhere because I feel like the speed and reliability of our infrastructure is part of the overall package. And so I, I you just could really couldn't convince me to go with a better performance, reliability, support, and price ratio. In fact, they're 30 to 50% cheaper than some of the major cloud providers out there. And Linode's been rolling out features since I've been a customer that just keep making it better and better. If you've got a minute, you got to go check it out. Like they just recently announced hosted database support for Postgres, MongoDB, and MySQL. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, just a few days ago, they released a guide to migrate your Postgres database to their managed database solution, which is something I'm going to look at. And then they've also recently released an Infrastructure as Code ebook by Justin Mitchell. It's a step-by-step Infrastructure as Code guide for Terraform, Ansible, Puppet, Chef, Salt, and of course some GitHub love is in there as well. It's totally free. You don't even have to put your email address in there to get this thing. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well because that is like a super valuable thing. Uh, when I started in IT, I would have had to go to the library and, and pay 35 45 65 bucks for something like that. You kids these days... And your great deals. It's the same thing with deploying infrastructure now at Linode. Stuff that literally would take me two weeks at best, maybe a month, I can now do in 30 seconds on Linode. And the performance is just so great. The beast of a system we have running our matrix box has just been killer. It's totally absorbed the growth. It's it's really so nice to be able to just kind of incrementally upgrade that stuff too, because we didn't start <laughs> at that high end of a machine. We just kind of slowly built to that as user demand required it. And Linode was there the whole way. There's so many great options, so many great things to try on Linode. But fundamentally, it's just the best way to run applications in the cloud under your control with the best support in the business. So why not get $100 to try it out and support the show? Go to linode.com slash unplugged. Well, I've been lazing about playing with the Dev One. Chris has been learning basic plumbing skills, turns out. Brent? What have you been up to while we've been away? Uh, you know, I've actually been spending a ton of time on my drum kit, but also I have been diving into Git, which is something I'm slightly embarrassed that I don't know yet and have skills in, but I feel like, hey, anytime to try is now, right? And the reason I've been doing that is that a few episodes ago, we talked about the new Jupiter Broadcasting website that the community is kind of putting together with us. And Stefan is working super hard on that. I think he has a little tracker of how many hours he's spent on it yet uh, so far. I think he's up to like 13, which to me is impressive what he's got done in that time. Uh, but I thought I could uh, help with that effort. But in order to do that, I would need to learn Git. Better reason than to uh, use the new website to do that. So I have been diving into Git trying to understand how it all works, pinging Wes at all times of the day to try to, you know, <laughs> how does, give me more, I don't quite wrap my head around it, but it's been super fascinating to dive into the history of Git. And I only have like a little tiny understanding, but you guys have been around a little longer than I have, at least in the Git world. So can you, can you inform me a little bit? Yeah, stay a while and listen. You know, I love that you're doing this, Brent. First of all, it's just great to have your help with the new website. Not everybody's willing to like understand that there's a bunch of bunch of first principles they have to go learn first before they can participate. And so we thought, all right, well, let's go back in time about 15 years to the real early days of Git, which is now just this super important tool that is used to manage so many, so many, so many projects out there. But back then it was kind of considered like this 
hard to use, confusing tooling. And so Linus Torvalds was invited to do a talk at Google back in 2007. And I wanted to play a little bit of the introduction for Linus. You can kind of hear the general attitude towards something that today it's like ubiquitous. But yeah, we back, just take it for granted. Man. Yeah, but back then it wasn't. Thank you for coming, everybody. Some of you have probably already heard of Linus Torvalds. Um, those of you who haven't, you're the people with Macintoshes on your laps. He's a guy who delights in being cruel to people. Um, his latest cruel act is to create a revision control system which is expressly designed to make you feel less intelligent than you thought you were. Um, thank you for coming down today, Linus. Um, I've been getting emails the past few days from people saying, where's Linus? Why hasn't he merged my tree? Uh, doesn't he love me anymore? And he walked into my office this afternoon. What are you doing here? But thank you for taking the time off. So Linus is here today to explain to us why on earth he would write a software tool which uh, only he is smart enough to know how to use. Thanks, Linus. A real comedian, this guy, right? Yeah, like yeah. cracking the jokes about Git. And Linus goes up there, and it's a it's a classic younger Linus. It's prime Linus, and he explains kind of why he likes using Git by explaining why he hates the other stuff. So I want to give a few credits before I start. I'll credit CVS in a very very negative way, because I, in many ways, when I designed Git. Uh, it's the what would Jesus do, except it's what would CVS never, ever do uh, kind of approach to source control management. Uh, I've never actually used CVS for the kernel. Uh, for the first 10 years of kernel maintenance, uh, we literally used tarballs and patches, which is a much superior source control management system <laughs> than CVS is. Uh, but I did end up using CVS for seven years at a commercial company, and I hate it with a passion. When I say I hate CVS with a passion, I have to also say that if there are any SVN users in Subversion, users in the audience, you might want to leave. It's just a classic, it's his classic presentation style. Um, and it, you know, really his point was is these other tools are just not good enough, and especially they weren't good enough for a project at the scale of the Linux project, the kernel, which is what he had to solve. Well, yeah, right. I mean, it, it's still a unique project, but then especially then, like throughout that talk, you kind of get a lot of, you get a, a bunch of questions of folks sort of asking, okay, I guess I can see why you'd, you'd need that for a weird project like the kernel where you have all these these distributed people working, you know, working in different time zones and across the world and with different connectivity. But do we really need Git for our like central corporate repo? And it's it's just wild to, to be reminded that people were skeptical, naturally skeptical of a, a new paradigm and a new technology. Right. And this was, at the time of this talk, this was a year before GitHub launched. The tooling was different back then, so people were a little more skeptical. There wasn't that kind of easy-to-use front end that was that added that whole social collaboration aspect as well. There's also something that he seemed to kind of hone in on that was important to him early on that I thought was interesting. And it it's like just something I take for granted about Git, but it's the offline distributed nature. I say it's so much more than just offline work, but the offline work part is actually maybe the most obvious thing, which is that you can take a truly distributed source control management system, you can take it on a plane, and even if they don't offer Wi-Fi and satellite hookups, 
uh, you just continue working, you can look at all your logs, you can commit, you can do everything you would do even if you were connected to a nice gigabit ethernet directly to the backbone. And that is really important. It is doubly important when you have hundreds or thousands of people working on the same project and they may not be literally disconnected, but in practice they aren't really well connected either. So part of distribution is, is this offline work theme. Even if it's not completely offline, it is important to be able to do everything you want to do from any location without having to be able to access a server. Um, what that basic fact actually results in is that you have to, you effectively have a lot more branching because everybody who has a complete repository and can do commits on his own will effectively have his own branch even if you don't realize it. Even if, even if you think of your project as just having a single branch, every single time you disconnect your laptop and start working with it, you are on your own branch. And this is really, really important. And it is very different from anybody who's used CVS, where branching is considered something that only true gurus do. You know, Brent, this is probably something coming into GitHub and Git, Git you kind of just take for granted right now that you can pull a copy down to your machine and work on it locally. Yeah, I think that's kind of maybe because I'm jumping into it at this time in in Git's history, but back then it sure does sound like that was not the norm. From kind of some of the research that I did, it seemed like it was always a server-client relationship where the source of truth, and we're not that far from it, but the source of truth was always on the server. I would imagine in a corporate office, you know, that wouldn't be so bad. But Linux seems to have changed the way that projects work. And so the concept of having the entire tree on your you know laptop or local computer and thousands of people might have that or you know in the case of the project i'm working on um you know i think we have like 10 people that are doing that and uh but everybody has their own copy and you're doing your own independent thing and then the ability to merge that later i think is kind of really where all the magic is happening so it took me a little bit to wrap my head around the concepts but man are they ever elegant once you really uh, dive into it a little bit and uh well i think it's pretty obvious to say that uh, it's been working fairly well considering the accomplishments that uh, git has helped with so um pretty cool another part though i think is that is maybe not obvious is um you know when you have this distributed system and you're not really privileging one branch it means you have a lot of different flexible working constraints because you don't have this one sort of central coordination point that everyone has to check in on. You can go off on your own for a while. So like, you know, Chris, you're finally, you get your RV parked up in Canada next to Brent and you guys are hashing out this new, a new theme for the website and you have this whole, you want to go off on a tangent and you try out some new stuff and you introduce some new things, but maybe, you know, the internet's not great and you don't want to be bothered. You don't have to check in all your things. You guys can both be working independently and then come together and then at some later date, go meet up with folks with other repos or, the, or the, you know, what we consider the source of truth that we happen to have chosen to host on GitHub or something. And then all of those can happen without anyone having to worry about what else someone else is doing until you actually have to go do that merge at the end. Yeah, that was the magic, really, that get brought. And you could see for a guy like Linus, who's working on a project the size of the Linux kernel, bringing in all these different changes, trying to figure out what changed, what needs to be reviewed. 
that kind of stuff was magic for him and was absolutely essential. And you kind of get a taste of that where he describes what he loves the most about Git. Somebody sends a bug report, which bug reports are usually not very good, but maybe the bug report is good enough that you can pinpoint, okay, SCSI subsystem. That's the command line. You can't say which file, but you can do this and say, okay, that will cut it down to from the 15,000 commits we've had since last week, it will cut it down to 50. That's a huge deal. That is something that nobody else can do. I guarantee you. So that's, that's the reason you want to use Git. That's what it all boils down to. It's safe. It is so fast that you can do things that nobody else can do. It is, it's does things that nobody else can do even slowly. And it's distributed. So go and spread the word. <laughs> go and spread the word, he says. Uh, we'll have a link to the full talk. It is great. It is great. Just go back to 2007. Of course, a year after that talk, 2008 is when GitHub launched. And in that talk, Linus talks a little bit about how the tooling is going to get easier for people to use. And as the tooling gets easier, you'll have more and more people adopt it. And then a year later, GitHub. Right. GitHub drops. If you just could, yeah. How, how much that has changed things, I don't think you could necessarily have foreseen. Yeah. So, Brent, um, I'm curious to know what it's been like, what you've learned, and uh, if, you're, if you're adopting any changes to your workflow. Have you cursed at Git yet? I will actually say it's been fairly smooth. I'm in like the, you know, first minute of my, you know, Git journey, I would say. But there, there's a great tutorial that I found uh, from a gentleman uh, the, called Tech with Tim. And what I appreciate about it is just like super straightforward and yet really well explained. So I'll make sure to link to that as well. I think sitting down and just wrapping your head around how everything interacts is probably worthwhile before even jumping in. I think the last time I tried to learn it, which I think was about two years ago, I tried to dive into the tooling right away. And because it has its own nomenclature, you know, you have branches and merging and I don't know, there's like probably a hundred of that I don't know yet. But um, diving into the tooling first, I think was my mistake initially because I didn't understand the whole concept and how that independence happens and how it all comes together and how Git relates locally to something like GitHub or uh, GitLab, you know, the other options out there. So I, I, I would really, if someone's going to dive in, I would recommend um, learn the concepts first and uh, wrap your head around the nomenclature and then those tools uh, will come super easily, hopefully, like they did for me. So I'm, I think I had some really nice success so far. Hopefully I don't run into some roadblocks that kind of get me frustrated. But it, what it's meant is that I could do my first pull request on a project uh, within, you know, a few hours of sort of diving in, which feels pretty darn great and has been for me, which I would imagine as many listeners, um, a kind of a goal is to give back to open source related projects. And I hope that this is kind of an enabler for me to just keep giving back. It's that value for value stuff we keep talking about. Yeah. You know, the, the, that's part of the distributed and common nature of Git these days is it's the sort of lingua franca of being able to interact and to share with other developers out there. You got to, you know, once you, once you know Git and it's a tool you can use to help, yeah, make updates, even if you see those updates until you can actually speak the language and help the tools share and, you know, interact and make it an easy way that someone can go, oh yeah, I can, I can accept these changes into my branch. 
it changes the game. And like all good free software infrastructure, you can, you know, you could deploy something like GitLab on your own VPS or on your own LAN and keep it all local and use that and be perfectly happy. You could just use Git on the command line or, you, you know, you can use something like GitHub. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of nice tooling built on top of this now. I don't want to step on office hours because we we kind of go in depth in office hours. But the new website will probably use Git for information updates that in theory, one day the audience could make a pull request on an episode of Linux Unplugged and add links or make modifications. And then we could merge that back in and then we would regenerate the Hugo page automatically with a GitHub action. And it's a way to keep our links relevant and fresh and have people add content. And, you know, the only barrier to entry, you can be any audience member in the world out there. The only barrier to entry is you would have to know how to interact with Git and GitHub. But that's a pretty low barrier to entry. And it could mean that something like it's just sort of bringing our production one step closer to sort of being completely open, modifiable by the audience. And you can that you so you can use Git and GitHub for tooling for show production, for Website generation, obviously for for projects. Well, uh, Casey uh, over in the mobile room points out it's not just for developers either. You can do stuff like uh, a cookbook, say. Yeah, we've done that. We've done open your mouth recipes on there. We also have used it for bug tracking for some of the Jupyter Broadcasting stuff. That's true. Notes. It's another area we've used it. So it's a it's a really powerful tool. And you know, as time has gone on, Linus has kind of changed his tune. He was such a he was really in cell mode back in two thousand and seven. But uh, now he doesn't really need to. In in Linux Action News this week, this past week, we covered the fireside chat that Linus had at the Open Source Summit. There was a clip in there we played, and he talks. He kind of jokes that in some areas Linus is better known for creating Git than he is for creating Linux, and he's kind of joking about that. And then we cut the clip off. But I want to play the extended version of that clip because I think it shows you sort of the transformation Linus has had as a public presenter. And sort of a more humble attitude he takes now. Linux is kind of my baby, and I've been doing it for 30 years plus, and, and it's what I do. Uh, my oldest daughter, when she went off to college and did computer science, I didn't push her. Uh, she, she emailed me back like a few months, a few weeks later, and, and was laughing at the fact that that I was known for Git at the computer science uh, department, even though I only did Git for f- six months. I mean, I'll, I'll take credit for it, but but Git, it's not my it's not my baby. It's it was a side project that I just had to start to actually do Linux development. Uh, so all the actually credit for Git goes to Junio Hamano. So if you if you ever see Junio and you're a Git user, buy him a beer or something because he's been a great maintainer for Git and, and my name comes up much too often when it comes to Git. Bitwarden.com slash Linux. Go there to get started with a free trial of Teams, Enterprise, or an individual plan at bitwarden.com slash Linux. It's a great way to support the show. It really is the easiest way for you to store, share, and sync sensitive data. Bitwarden is fully customizable, especially in enterprise environments, can adapt to your business needs. And for open source projects, they have tooling in there that make it really safe to share sensitive information with people that are on your project. And of course, Bitwarden itself is open source. It's trusted by millions of individuals, teams, organizations, and many more worldwide 
for secure password and storage. And I don't just put passwords in there. I'll put credit information in there for my credit card. I'll put, you know, like the numbers. I'll put uh, my two-factor authentication codes in there. So that way I can do passwords and two-factor autofill. There's recovery keys I'll put in there for some software because I really trust the Bitwarden system. I trust the way they do the encryption, the security. I love the fact that it's open source. And I also love the fact that if I ever want, I could self-host it as well with Fault Warden. And one of the things that I think gives people a lot of confidence is that sort of backout option. Maybe you've already tried Bitwarden, but you weren't aware of some of the new features. I wanted to kind of reach out to some of you out there that are already using Bitwarden. And I want to suggest you try out the new username generator. Because, you know, I've, I've used Bitwarden for a couple of years now. And I think this is one of the coolest updates they've done in a while. And they've just recently added like the, the one-two punch. And now they can also create email aliases that work with things like Simple Login or Firefox Relay. You just put the API key in. And then they'll, t- they'll generate the username. They'll generate the password. And they'll generate the email address, all unique to that site or that service. There's really no better way to manage your security. That's like the number one thing right there. You do that. And you're just really protecting yourself from information leaks or even malicious types of activity. It's, it's like the one thing. And it's, it's so simple and so straightforward with Bitwarden. Even if you've already set yourself up too, maybe you have a family member or a friend or a, maybe a working environment that could use a little Bitwarden password hygiene, send them over to bitwarden.com slash Linux, would you? It's a great way for you or someone else to try it out for free or for a business. And of course, support the show. It's bitwarden.com slash Linux. Well, the feedback bag is getting a little full in the corner. We better take a few off the top. And uh, this first one, our buddy Tim from JPL and our favorite Linux copter. He's got a bit of a correction for us. Linux on the Linux copter is not real time. The kernel was too modified for us to be able to apply the real-time patches to make it more real-time. But as I mentioned in the first episode, the processor is just so dang fast that not being real-time didn't really hurt us, and we also built some robustness into the design to mitigate when it might happen. I double-checked. He's right. He didn't say it was a real-time kernel. Yeah, he said that the hardware ended up being fast enough that they didn't need to. But I just remember being so, like, blown away by the fact that I was... Not even re- I didn't even consider the fact that, you know, for space operations, they might want a real-time kernel. That was really what stuck out there. But it's interesting to know. It's just a, it's not real-time. Well, and I think maybe this underscores that the work getting the patch set more into the kernel that's been happening recently means that perhaps in the future, it won't be so much of a conflict here. You know, as I said, right, they had patches, merge conflicts, as we're talking about Git this episode, where they couldn't apply those two things. So as it becomes more standard, maybe that will make it easier, in mm-hmm. the, even if they don't necessarily need it, but it might help. By the time they're building the next Linux copter, it might just be mainline, you know. We should also mention, Brent, that there is a really fantastic brunch coming up with Tim from JPL. Yeah, I got the chance to sit down with Tim a little while ago and record a wonderful conversation. Tim, it sounds like you're probably listening, so uh, that'll come out, I think, the weeks of the week of 3, 4, 5 July. We don't know the exact date, but keep your ears open soon not this week maybe next week we'll see um and also there is another episode of brunch with brent sitting in the tubes if you're looking for it i did a chat with quentin that got released last week so that's worth checking out too extras.show for those right now go over there and get your brunch on dan wrote in about the dev one uh mentioning 
Does it come with the BIOS option to limit battery charge to, say, 80% to preserve the health of the battery while it is plugged in for long periods of time? This feature is sadly missing on most cheap laptops. I do remember seeing a limit somewhere when I was looking at it. Oh, did you? Because I just checked before and did not see one in the BIOS. So it's not in the BIOS, sounds like, which would be really nice to have. Of course, you could do it with several different projects. That's probably the route. I hadn't really decided how I would do it. I I still use TLP on my my ThinkPad. Mm, Right. That could be one. Paulo wrote in with podcast management. Between Linux and Android, I think he's gotten the struggles. He says, it would be nice and you'd think it'd be simple, but no, I'm using gpotter and a tenopod. But gpotter.net doesn't seem to be very stable. Do you guys have any suggestions? I think because they're using gpotter.net for the back end on the uh, podcast. Mm. You know, I'm going to toss a link in the show notes for an interview I did with Mitch from Podverse. And you can go to podverse.fm. And it's a GPL podcast client that's available for Android, iOS, and the web. And its core feature is that it syncs between all three of those platforms. Uh, on the web version, it does support Boost. The Boosts are still in beta development for the mobile version. There are beta versions of the apps floating around that have it, though. But the nice thing about Podverse is that you can finish what you're listening to on your desktop, kind of like you can with Pocket Cast Web, but it's it's all just sort of inherent to Podverse. It's sort of the default. Uh, so I did an interview with Mitch, who's the developer, and uh, I'm, I'll put a link to that in there. And you can, of course, search for Podverse in your uh, in your uh, Play Store or in the uh, Apple App Store or go to podverse.fm. If that sounds too radical, it does look like the uh, back end for gpotter.net is open source. So you could consider self-hosting that. Isn't there, I thought there was a way to also. I've never tried that. I thought there was a way to sync G, uh, AntennaPod with NextCloud. Oh, uh, that does sound right. I'm just not an AntennaPod user, so I don't know. But if you out there do, uh, send us a boost and we'll, we'll pass it along. Because uh, a lot of people love that AntennaPod. And uh, if you could take that syncing and, and self-host it, I think that'd be the way to go. What podcast? Oh, Gpotter Sync, there's an app in the NextCloud app. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, so there's a Gpotter app in NextCloud. That's what it was. Brent, what podcast app are you using these days? That's a personal question. Yeah, I know. That's a very, um, I don't know if I want to say. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, AntennaPod's the thing I've been using for a very long time, probably five years. And I haven't felt like changing ever since, well, until some of these boost things came out. So I'm secretly hoping that their sort of boost integration is going to speed up a little bit. We'll see. But I've been super happy with it. I will say it does just about everything I want. And now you're adding the sync functionality, to which is news to me. So I, I don't know. I'm, I feel pretty darn happy. We'll drop a link to the Nextcloud Gpotter app so you can, you know, just sync to your Nextcloud. I'll say this. Fountain FM recently did an update and they have got me now. It's one of those where I initially, with this update, I was like, that sounds like a scam. I am I am out. And then I started using it, and I'm like, this is the only app I'm using now. So on my road trip, using Fountain FM, I don't know if you can see that, Brent, probably not, I earned 3,000 sats listening to podcasts now. So what they've done on Fountain, for most podcasts, when you're listening, you earn sats in the background. They do this uh, by two ways. One, the podcaster can help subsidize, so like I can incentivize listening. But uh, the way they actually do it is they have just a couple of low-key promoted clips. The Fountain FM has a really active clips ecosystem where people are clipping podcasts and sharing them, and you can follow each other. And I clip and share podcasts, and a bunch of the audience follows me, and they clip and share their podcasts. And I've discovered like a whole new—I've got like three or four new podcasts I'm listening to on the regular now through this feature. And one of the things they've done is at the very top of Fountain FM— 
they now have a promoted. And they make it really obvious. These are very clearly promoted clips. They do stand out. And you know what? They're really not bad. They're either like, you know, two minutes of a of a podcast or it's essentially like a host read ad. Like, um, not your keys, not your coins. Casa pairs self-custody with best in class. But- I mean, it's not bad, right? It's like eight seconds. And by listening to it, I just earned 176 sets. So that's how they're generating the revenue for the sats. And then by listening, you don't have to listen to ads to get the sats. You can listen to podcasts. I suppose that does help as a um, onboarding if you then want to use those sats to send out to some of the podcasts you listen to. So this is the advantage, right? It's an open system. So I could send them to my wallet and I could just keep them. But now I've got 3,000 sats. I could boost one of the podcasts I listen to. Hey, that's a whole 65 cents almost. So um, it's actually legit. I thought it'd be, you know, you're streaming me sats. It actually is really good. I'm going to put my referral link in the show notes because uh, then I get uh, um, credit for you using it. And I'm Chris Lass over there if you want to follow me and hear my clips and stuff like that. Are oh, you taking some clips over there? I'm, mm. I'm, I'm dropping clips every now and then. You know, sometimes Wes Payne says something real insightful and I put it on Fountain. And then the other nice thing about Fountain is once you clip it, you can generate an audio file, you can generate a video file, or you can generate a web link if you want to send somebody a link to listen to it. I just podcasting, nice. it's yeah. been missing this. And it's they've done a really good job. And it's actually fun to earn the sats. Just I was listening to shows I would listen to anyways, and now I've got 3,000 sats I can send to somebody. And here I am making clips for my family members with Reaper like an animal. Yeah, same. And now it is time for Le Boost. Mr. Adam Curry, the podfather, boosted in again. He says, uh, boosting for Helipad. Pew, pew. Pew. Helipad is the tool. It is the tool. So thank you, Podfather, and thank you, Dave Jones, for working on Helipad. Indeed. It is a front end that pulls in all of the boosts and and gives us information like what episode you were listening to, what app you used to send it with all the right icons. It also has a fun confetti and sound effect that it creates. It's a real experience, and it's a real-time updating dashboard, so I can leave Helipad up on my screen. I think Adam does the same. That's, and, what, that's what got you hooked right there. Yeah, and I just see the boost coming <laughs> in. I just, I totally love it. It's really great. Four, one, two, Linux boosted in five days ago with 500 sats. This is my vote for the Airwolf theme as the stream starter. <laughs> okay, we've been debating a, a song inspired by the Podfather. They get, I, here's what I'm thinking. I was listening to their live stream and I noticed that they play a song before the show every time and it's the same song. And then I realized like, this is genius because it kind of probably gets them in like a mental headspace. You know, you could be having a bad day. Maybe you're fighting a lot of the tech. Maybe it's 90 degrees in your you studio. You realize you forgot a pre-show again. And like, if you could program your brain to get in the headspace every time you hear the song, you hear the song and it's go time. It's show time. And so we've been debating in our pre-show, what song could we listen to over and over again that would get us in the right headspace? And so 412 Linux is, he's, he's voting for Airwolf. I want to sample it. So those that don't listen to the live stream, get a little idea of what Airwolf sounds like. I'll just play you a little bit. It's a classic, like, 80s-style television show intro. It's pretty good, right? It's not great. It's not epic, necessarily. But I realized, wouldn't it be great if we picked a song that had different remixes, you know, so it has to be popular enough that there's different remixes. And you guys, this is where Airwolf shines. <laughs> Check out this remix. This is killer. A little helicopter sound effect. 
right? Elite podcasters airdropping in to do our thing. Picture it. Podcast mercenaries talking about Linux. Yeah, right? It hits. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Linux! Yeah! And it doesn't stop there. I got one more. See, Airwolf has got one more <laughs> oh remix that I think is a serious contender. Yeah, synthwave version, baby. Ooh, they they even sped it up a little bit. Whoa! Oh. So, I think Airwolf could be a contender. I don't know if it's the right note, but I feel like it's got some serious range. I I, I do think. Having remixes available is a strong plus, that's for sure. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. And something we should consider in other contenders. Boost. Retromat boosted in six days ago with 9,250 sats. Chris, you got any guesses? 9250. 9250. I feel like it's almost a zip code. <laughs> is that the right amount of numbers for a zip code? That's a good amount, though. Nope. Nope. It's not, right, not, not, not the right amount of numbers. So I don't know. Good try. I don't know. Retro Matt, you'll have you to know tell they have, us. We have zip plus four. That's zip minus one. Right, right. It's so it, maybe it's like, ah, maybe it's the last four digits of a phone number, or they're social. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They write during my freshman year at RIT. I learned of a band called the New Deal. This was also the year I first used Linux. To this day, I can still remember hearing their self-titled album for the first time. I've been listening to you guys debate over your new intro song and wanted to suggest a song called Receiver by The New Deal. It's off their self-titled album release in 2001. I think its vibe is right. First boost. Whoop. All right. Tell me what you guys think. Now remember, you got to listen to this every time before we start the show. It's not the new intro. It's the new pre-show start song. It's got to get you in the show mood. And you got to be willing to hear it like a thousand times. Imagine we're doing a live event. We're sitting in front of an audience. We're playing this song. Okay, we're going to use it forever. You're really frustrated because Pipewire somehow broke on you right before. I will say, right as I'm about to bail on this song, it drops into a new gear and I like it again. So it's about, I'm like, right at this point, I start to get burned out and it's about to hit again and then I'm in again. I can see you burning out. Here we go, see? Just as I was done. I think we'd need to have like a phone prop with us so we can sort of like pick up the phone. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, uh, and then if that phone was connected and it sounded like a phone and you could talk into it. Hey there, Wes. How's it going? Uh, you know? It'd be a sweet way if you had like audience questions too. Like you're like handing them this like old corded plugged in phone. I don't feel like I could hear it again though. I've heard it three times on the stream now and I feel like I'm done with it. 
Yeah, I was going to say you know, the same too. It's like too. a good song though. I enjoyed it. Enjoyed it the first time yeah, around. I enjoyed it. But I noticed that, well, because we are lucky to have this video thing that I'm not trying not to refer to, but I noticed that we were really getting to it with that Airwolf remix. Uh, and that's true. Yeah. I observed that we weren't quite into this this time playing this song around. So just an observation. Yeah. We were dancing. Mm. We are live video streaming over at Jupiter Tube these days. Bond boosted in six days ago. B O O S T. Thanks for the in depth review on the Dev One. I wasn't even thinking of it as an option until I listened to the episode. I've been using Pop OS exclusively for around two years now. I'm waiting for the Limur Pro update to drop on June 23rd. I'll compare the two laptops and pick the one that may be my new main computer. Bond, I was the same way. I would never have considered buying an HP before this. Uh, no offense to people who enjoy HP. I just had a bad experience with several hundred of them. So I would never have bought one. But this, we've bought one. So, like, there's one right here. Brett's got one. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's an uh, infestation. They did it. They actually did it. Michael B boosted in. That B must be for boost, surely, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Two days ago with 6,000 sets. Thanks for the review. I wouldn't consider an HP laptop otherwise as a good Linux machine. How about that? Okay. Well, you're not crazy, I guess. Yeah. But this is a, you know, a good point that things can change. And, you know, surely this, some of the partnership with System76 helps get some of those things right, or at least make sure they don't go too far off course. It's nice to see. It is nice to see. I, uh, I bet they were really nervous trying to crack that market, too. I could see that. C-Dubs boosted in with a super geeky boost because he used the Boost CLI tool. Boost! That is really geeky. Uh, And he sent 10,101 sats. Looks like binary to me. Yeah. I wonder if that's a binary message. There's a couple of bigger boosts in here. And I just wanted to say thank you guys um, because sats are on sale right now. Probably going to be on sale for a little bit. And... We still consider them, you know, they're the same sats to us. So this is a great opportunity to boost the dip a little bit. And if everything works out, who knows? But in a couple of years, you know, this 10,000 sat boost may be something that helps the network. You know, like that could be something that it is a dollar amount that increases over time. So you can kind of boost today for something that continues to drive value for a long time. And that's one of the things I think is the most interesting about using lightning for the value for value model is potentially there is an opportunity for an audience member to sort of get some sats on the cheap, send them to a podcaster, that podcaster or open source project, they sit on them for a couple of years and, and, you know, they're worth, they're worth maybe twice what they were worth or something like that. And, you know, what you're out 10 bucks, the podcaster gets 20 bucks in a couple of years. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting setup. It's an interesting setup. That's all. I think it's a neat opportunity. Uh, C-Dubs writes, boosting the NixOS router project. I'm going to, I'm not going to use it on a Pi, though, but I have a question for you guys. Do you have a dedicated monitor or mouse for your router setup? I looked into tinypilotkvm.com, and it requires a network, which I might not have where I'm working at. Thank you for the show, I think. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I don't know what that acronym stands. T-Y-F-Y-C. We've thought about using, like, um, Pi KVM. Alex and I have talked about that quite a bit on Yeah, yeah, totally. I think it is really nice. What I like to do, at least when we're setting up, is I like to have a table with a monitor mouse and a keyboard and a network hub just kind of there for the build. But then once I deploy it, no, I typically haven't had a monitoring keyboard on my routers. Yeah, same. Sort of a, if, I, if I'm careless enough that I really break it, then the punishment I get is dragging a monitor over there, yeah. which is not the best system. A KVM would be much, much slicker, but it, it, 
in practice hasn't been too bad. Yeah. And I imagine, especially with the Nix OS setup, you know, it's going to be especially resilient. I want a serial console. Mm, yeah. Is there a carrier board out there that has a serial console? I could probably do USB to serial. That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. Okay, but if we can get that, that's the only way you're allowed to connect. Yeah. <laughs> Anonymous wrote in five days ago with 360 sats. Here's some sunshine and confetti. Thanks for another great episode. Cospelin boasted in boasted in with 3690 sats as he do. Boost. There's a lot of critical op- opinions about the Umbral 0.5 release, which we mentioned recently in their Telegram groups. Some downgrades of potential security or Bitcoin client versions. So I've heard a lot of folks that are sad after updating. I'm still on the old version myself, and I'm looking to manually update specific containers and maybe do Docker overrides. Thanks for the show. So Umbral is this application platform you can use to self-host. A lot of really great open source applications. Chat apps, Vault Warden, uh, Photo uh, Prism, and Bitcoin node and Lightning nodes. And they've separated them out as separate apps. And I think there's some growing pains. You know, I wonder, Wes, what would you, what would you recommend somebody backs up before they upgrade something like Umbral? So, you know, it's one of the, there's lots Everything. of these tools. It's using Docker containers under the hood. What do you, the, the, the data directories? I mean, what do you need to back up to be safe? I, I almost feel like we should try this after the show and just see how it goes. See how, see if Umbral breaks Yeah, it might us. be a motivation for if you don't. If you are using something like an appliance, maybe you want it in a virtual machine that you can usually, you know, easily take. Snapshot. Mm -hmm, That Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Otherwise, yeah, you probably want to to look at how it's set up specifically. Is it mounting things in directory-wise? Is it it just using Docker volumes directly? Uh, I don't actually recall, but that would be a place to start looking. Yeah. Perhaps we'll dig into it. Mm, Break some things. I like it. The Golden Dragon uh, wrote in again. Thank you very much. Three days ago, 222 sats. Small Duck Row, thanks for the double episode. I'm a duck, D-U-K, duck, loaded with talent. Grounded Grid boosted in a week ago with 2,600 sats. I'm late, but just installed XOS. Having a config file that defines my system reminds me of my other favorite operating system, Emacs. Uh, I thought he was going to say FreeBSD because that's what Alan Jude used to go on all the time about. You know, you've got that rc.conf, everything's mm-hmm. in there. He was right. It's it, a nice thing to have. It is a nice thing to have. I love that Grounded Grid decided to uh, keep doing the NixOS challenge, even though we kind of have stopped. I love that it's continuing on. I think that's awesome. Carry that torch. Grounded Grid also gave us a double boost. 2,600 sats. Thanks for the great Jupiter content. After listening for several years, I still get excited when new episodes Aww. are released. That's A, so sweet. Indeed. I think that's a goal, right? So do we. Yeah. Well, we do, don't we? We are very, yeah. <laughs> we are very excited when they publish and they download. It's a nice relief, actually. <laughs> so we agree with you on that. Um, we also got some thank you boosts. Uh, 100 sats from Tim B, 500 sats from User412, 500 sats from IT Guy 05, and 500 sats from User95. Oh, Way right. better than that user 94. Let me tell you what. If you'd like to send a boost into the show, go grab a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. Or maybe you're an AntennaPod user. You love using AntennaPod. You could grab Breeze, B-R-E-E-Z dot technology. And then you just add the podcast in there and you can send in a boost without having to switch your podcast app. Or be extra nerdy with Boost CLI. Our picks this week are kind of on theme. We had to do the obligatory Get Kraken pick, which is... 
Well, it's a GUI interface to use GitHub, but do any of us actually use Kraken, Git Kraken? I find most of the utility if I'm trying to review like a complicated tree, you know, like there's been a lot of branches going on or some complicated merges in the recent history that I'm trying to review, like just what's happening or what the status of things are day to day. No, not really. Yeah. I found it to be overwhelming. It was just too much for me. It's too much. Too gosh darn much. But Brent suggested, and I think he's totally right. We should just include the awesome Git list, which is on GitHub itself, which just includes some of the best tools for Git out there. It's kind of a meta pick. And we could go in and pick one or two, but the list is is worth perusing. Yeah, send us some boosts about the tools that you liked or what it's missing, something like that. Yeah, I'd love some suggestions on uh, what I should use to make it either easier or better or maybe resources on how to learn best practices, something like that. Padawan, stick with the command line. Come on. Uh, If you'd like to uh, join us live, we do the show on Sundays around noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Our mumble room is always up and going. You get a high quality Opus audio feed and you can jump in and share your thoughts as we go along. Details are at linuxunplugged.com slash mumble for that. Jupiter.tube is where we're streaming the video version of the show and it's available for replay over there as well. And last but not least, if you're not checking out Linux Action News, well, then you're missing on what the heck's going on. You're missing on it. You should probably check it out. It's probably worth checking out. LinuxActionNews.com. Go over there. Give it a listen. We got our Matrix chat rooms if you want to join. There's a LUP feedback chat room over there. There's a, we got a whole, whole rash of Matrix chat rooms. What else? Uh, well, stay tuned for those exciting new brunches in the extras feed. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, you could just subscribe to the All Shows feed and get all the shows. That's probably worth mentioning. I think that's all the stuff that's worth mentioning, really. <laughs> I can't really, if I can't think of it, how important could it be? There's, there's probably more, but I'll just say join us live. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. Yeah, good enough, right? Links to everything we talked about today, those are over on the website, linuxunplugged.com slash, what is this, 464? That's how it works. You just go there. Episode number, and you go there, and there's that links. Easy? suspicious at least until we screw it up yeah it's that easy maybe we'll break it one day of course over there you can find our contact form if you want to send us your feedback that way you also can join uh, the uh, gosh darn matrix rooms by the links over there that's all there we made it real easy for you linuxunplug.com a lot of those links should probably be on our main website maybe brent will do a pull request to get that fixed up in the meantime thanks Once so he much. learns what it is yeah right sure just almost there thanks so much for joining us see you next week we had ourselves a little bit of a technical challenge our uh, obs machine overheated during that and shut it, down it is having a day it did itself there. a little thermal throttle over there well we're pushing it harder than ever these days i know so. i know well it's because we're doing it's brent really it's brent's high quality face oops sorry guys sorry guys it's that whole photography background I had a follow-up question for you uh, both, actually, and maybe even the mumble room. I talked a little bit about my teeny tiny Git journey so far, but Wes, I would imagine you've been using this for years and maybe even a different versioning tool. And Chris, I'm curious about your history, too. So um, could you guys uh, inform me, please? 
What's your guess? Git history. You know, I've dabbled with the GitLab, but I've never had a real use case myself personally. I've thought about it for my desktop config management. I thought what a cool setup that would be is like my own hosted GitLab. And then like I'm checking in my dot files and all of that kind of stuff. And then I started thinking, oh, I could do that with my Nix config and all that. But ultimately, I, I just use GitHub. I always have. I, I used it. I've, I've been a member for a long time because I had private repositories on there. And that was sort of the way you did it back in the day. And it's always been sufficient for me, but I've never used it in like a like a, a day-to-day development practice. So I don't I, I'm kind of like the cat I'm the most casual user possible with that kind of stuff. Do you uh interface with it much for the day job? And yeah, yeah is it absolutely. actual GitHub or using Git? Is it uh, local stuff? Well, I use, you know, Git locally, of course, and kind of a hybrid. I do enjoy the um support built into VS Code is is quite yes. is quite nice. Yes. Um, yes. Especially for if you're trying to like resolve a tricky merge conflict rebase, that kind of thing. The highlighting built in is nice. Um but otherwise uh, often just use the command line client as well. And then we've got a GitLab hosted internally. Um, but no, I mean, that's that's kind of the output of my work. You know, at the end of the day, it's a um, merge request or pull request that is attempting to make changes to a repository. And that's that's the way I communicate. That's the way I exchange ideas and stuff with my coworkers. So it's kind of fundamental to my job. Yeah, it's like the tangible thing yeah, that you right. produce too. At the end of the day, that's it, yeah. How many of those have you made? Between that and, you know, sadly Jira tickets, that's kind of how it goes. That's weird. That's probably so true for so many people too. Mm-hmm. And then maybe uh, that'll be us. You know, one day when we're done, the end result is going to be an episode that we put up on GitHub and, and the details and stuff like that. And then it goes out and it's a powerful idea. Ah, uh, the dream. 